Hey, everyone. This is Derek Stone. And this is Conrad Geringer. And you're listening to the Working Triathlete Podcast. Today, we are speaking with Bjorn Larson. Bjorn is a working triathlete. He is a travel tech entrepreneur who started and sold numerous companies, including Rocket Miles. He is a family man with a wife who, who is also an endurance athlete, and he has four children. So he definitely lives a, a very busy life. Bjorn recently did Ironman Arizona in November. It was his first Ironman. But what I think will truly fascinate listeners is, is the way Bjorn approached the race, especially his training. He averaged six hours per week of training intentionally. Bjorn is interested in optimization and efficiency and was eager to meet the challenge of doing an Ironman on very, very little volume. And we can get into the why and how of that in our discussion. But before we begin, I do want to clarify that we are not universally advocating that an Ironman should be attempted on six hours per week. However, Bjorn's approach and, and his performance does demonstrate that a smart plan and careful execution of that plan can put completion of an Ironman within grasp of extremely busy, high-performing people. Bjorn, welcome to the podcast. And if, if you would, please introduce yourself, talk about your background briefly, where you're from, what you do, and how you got into endurance sports. Sounds good. Well, thank you, first of all, uh, so much for having me. As, uh, as you can probably already tell, I'm from Norway. I have a slight accent that usually comes out a bit stronger uh, if I'm tired or if I'm drinking. <laughs> I guess the, the shortest answer to why and how um, I was able to do that is because of you guys. So the reason I'm, I'm here talking about it is I was joking with Conrad uh, a few weeks ago that I think in addition to writing a book called Working Triathlete, you should make a book called Working Dad Triathlete. You guys have a lot of amazing people uh, on your team that are, are achieving incredible things, maybe going from, from 20 or 15 hours down to 10 a week. But if you're that bucket uh, list person who you know, has a dream of doing an Ironman, all of the things that you guys coach and teach are equally applicable in order to be able to do it really efficiently. And so... While I was hoping to spend more than, than the six hours sort of going into it, there's no way I could have done it without, without you guys. In terms of quick background, uh, I grew up in Norway, came here for college, for work. I have been working with startups my whole life. My wife, who's from uh, Minnesota, which makes her more Norwegian than I am, has always been a, a runner. She has done five marathons. She hasn't done much in the last 10 years, and, but just decided to, to get back into it. So as I was training for this, my wife was also training for a marathon. We have four kids. The reason that it's, it's a time-consuming thing, having four kids, is also that their, their ages are 10, 8, 5, and 3. So they're just kind of at that stage of life where they require a lot of, a lot of attention. We have four kids in three different schools right now. So there's a lot of drop-offs and pickups and, and all of that. I also, I think it's worth mentioning that we have a pretty social life. A lot of friends. We live in Brooklyn, New York. You don't live here unless you like hanging out with other people because you can't avoid it. And I also do things like every year race a $500 car race called Lemon, meaning the car can only be $500 and it's an endurance race. So trying to not give up too many of those things and just making my entire life about training for an Ironman was, was a priority um, because life's too short to not enjoy it. And separately, also enjoying the training and finding ways to make the training as enjoyable as possible and adding to life instead of being this massive sacrifice that you, you did for a year so that you could, could sort of do an Ironman. That's my background. Thanks for having me here. 
Thanks for, for hopping on. So I think the, the bottom line is that you are a busy, busy person and you wanted triathlon to accentuate your life. And I think it's, it's pretty common for triathletes to allow triathlon to become the number one priority in their life to the point where, you know, it steals from their enjoyment of it. I do think that athletes whose main priority or profession or very important hobby of theirs is triathlon. I think it's certainly reasonable to train as much as they can and if they enjoy it. But also there is a massive demographic of people and you're in that that demo that wants triathlon to enhance their life. And you reached out and the initial goal was to do a 70.3. I know for, from the get-go. Um, so you had just sold company, I don't know how long ago prior or a few months prior, and maybe your ability to spend more time working out increased. Was that the order of things? Yeah, sort of. So I guess I can touch a little bit on, on, on my work stuff. So eight years ago, a couple of my, my very good friends and I started a company called Rocket Miles, and it actually sold to Booking Holdings, which is, you know, owns Priceline and Open Table and Kayak. It's the world's largest travel company already in 2015, but we stayed on and, and grew the company from, you know, we were 40 people when we sold to 250 people when I left in 2020. So it's just a really busy, busy work life. That company is spread all around the world. I, I spent, you know, weeks at a time in, in Thailand and Amsterdam and Rocket Miles was headquartered in Chicago. So every so often I would go out to Chicago. And so there's just a lot of work travel. You know, I knew that at some point that chapter of my life was going to be finished and it happened to coincide with when COVID hit. I had sort of shared with a team that I would leave in the fall. I shared it with them in the fall of 2019 and I'm leaving in March 2020, right as the, the whole world was kind of um, starting to fall apart, certainly in travel. What that meant was, first of all, it was a bit weird of a feeling to, to leave in general and certainly leave at that time. I will say that the company has done tremendously both through COVID and coming out of COVID. And, and I'm very close with, with the people leading it. And I love the company. I knew that there would be another thing for me. I just didn't know what or when. And uh, the first part of, of leaving was I'm basically just doing remote schooling for, for my children for during COVID, right? So I basically left with no plan on what to do next, uh, knowing that I would eventually do something again. So I had done a triathlon, two triathlons back in 2010, 2009 Olympics. And I did always have this idea that one day maybe an Ironman definitely didn't plan to do one this year, but that was on my mind, wanted to get more in shape and, and yeah, reached out to you to help me get ready for a 70.3, which I'd actually signed up for in 2019, just couldn't find enough time, couldn't get structured, ended up not doing. So, so this time around, I really wanted to do it. It's worth mentioning too, that <laughs> around that time, right after I left the company, I started training a little bit and I dropped a, a toilet on my toe and broke my toe or shattered, I think is the word that the podiatrist used. And so that took me like six to eight weeks of recovery. And then right after that, my appendix burst. And so I had another, like, like had to go in surgery another eight weeks. So I just really didn't get started in 2020 the way that I had hoped to, but ended up signing up in sort of late 2020 and, and reached out to you, I think maybe early 21, um, about getting some structure to the madness. You mentioned the, the endurance 
24 hour race. So right now I'm envisioning Ford versus Ferrari, uh, that type of event, but I know racing cars is incredibly taxing. And especially mentally, when you think about a 24 hour event, is this something that you raced the entire time or did you have like a, a driver that traded off every couple hours? Yeah. So I wish I could say that it was anything like what you described. So the, the big caveat is the car has, cannot be worth more than $500. So we have a 1988 Volvo 740 turbo intercooler with chopped springs and it's been very good to us. We've done about 10 races with it. Um, they do these all over the, all over the country. If it sounds fun to you, you should look it up 24 hours of lemons instead of lemon. That said, when you're in that race car, it feels like car, like real racing. And we don't do it through the night. That's so basically two days of endurance racing. The honest, slightly serious note, I think that all, of, all the things that I learned about sort of fueling and energy consumption and just having good intuition on like how long the tank would, would last, like reminded me a lot of, of, of what we do in that race. Each team is four to six people, but you have to plan out exactly how the day is going to go on how much, you know, how, how much is in the fuel, uh, how much is, is in the tank for each person and when do the driver changes and all of that. And then all of the unexpected stuff that can happen and actually driving. So we have a Tesla and, and I tow the race car with a Tesla and getting it back to its location, you know, with as few charges as possible also reminds me a lot of what we're doing in training because you go up a hill and you, you hit the pedal, you're basically burning so much energy that, you know, you need, five charges instead of three or two charges. And so I think that concept of the combination, like just energy consumption math and math in general has just been a super enjoyable part of this, especially coming out of a company where we're just extremely focused on KPIs and metrics and, and having something else that's metric focused and trusting in the numbers and trusting in your, your FTP and function of FTP is something you can do for this period of time and stuff has just been probably the biggest part of, of being able to, to do this for me because that's sort of what I feel like I've done a lot in my life in general, both in, in work and outside of work. For you, these KPIs or you know the training metrics, uh, they were especially essential just because at least for Ironman Arizona, there was not as much room for error as you know there typically might be. So obviously, we started working together and training went well. Your fitness advanced very quickly at the beginning. I know. So you were coming off of, like you mentioned, a 2020 that was riddled with injuries and toilets being dropped on your toes and things like that. So we, we started with 70.3 Atlantic City in mind. People adapt to training at, at different rates. And, and it does seem that, that you have a good base fitness level and you adapt to training. And, and that was evident, especially on the bike. We saw your power output increase and everything was obviously advancing as one would hope throughout a, a training plan. You were, you were consistent. And, and like you said, you were realistic, obviously live a big life. And if you, you missed a workout, you wouldn't sweat it. You would prioritize the, the key workouts. And over time, obviously, you were able to build fitness. Talk a little bit about your training going into Atlantic City. I know that you know we started off as as many athletes do a lot of indoor riding, and at working triathlete we, we definitely emphasize that, especially higher intensity riding. We allocate a lot of intensity to the bike, mostly focus on easy running. So you, you did that in Brooklyn, and then you went overseas, and then got in another great training block there. I guess to take a quick step back and just kind of set the stage, like 
I'm not a very athletic guy. Like I wasn't athletic growing up. I skied growing up because I'm, you know, in Norway, like downhill skiing. My journey uh, led me to <laughs> liking computers and starting businesses a lot more than, than being out there exercising. When I was 21, I think I was at my heaviest. I weighed almost 220 pounds. I couldn't run a mile. I didn't do anything. You know, it was probably the absolute opposite spectrum of, of where you guys are and, and spent your lives around that age. I decided to lose a lot of weight or I lost 40 pounds basically in, in six months and started exercising. And at that point in time, decided to do marathons, signed up for New York Marathon in 2006 and completed that. But very you know, hating most of it and just sort of, you know, begrudgedly <laughs> doing it. Fast forward to 2010, my boss at the time had told me about an Ironman. He was a swimmer and a runner and he bought a bike and thought he would do an Ironman, ended up not doing it. But I looked it up and it just seemed like the one of these, like, I will never do that uh, type of a thing. That was around the time I did New York Marathon and I was very happy to have like checked that box and that was going to be my endurance bucket list sort of thing. Nevertheless, I, I did do two Olympic triathlons in 2010, then work and life kind of got in the way. And then in 2015, uh, when we moved to Brooklyn from Boston, I wanted to have, I, I realized I, I'm not going to work out unless I have something to work out towards. And so I just un, started signing up for like one half marathon a year just to get into running. So leading into Atlantic City from 2015 to 2019, I had been sort of a, a fairly on-off runner, like call it one to three times a week <laughs> as a type of a runner. Three would be like, because I'm training for the half marathon. Going into training, I thought that running would be my strength because I figured if I can do a half marathon and I can just sort of get onto the bike and, and bike slowly, I should be able to do this. Swimming, I had done any of since 2010. Back then, I watched some YouTube videos to kind of get some technique that, that didn't totally suck, probably, and that I can kind of do for a long time, slowly. And that's still where I'm at today. The coolest thing that I saw early in our training pro program, so Atlantic City is in September. I think we started in February, March, Conrad, mm -hmm. was you know on the trainer. And, and I'd read your book leading up to that and got in the trainer. And it was just these like super structured, intense, one-hour just going in the basement, like just like absolutely digging in. And I really enjoyed it. I would crank music literally in my basement and just sort of treat those workouts as like it's a one hour, you know, just absolutely follow it. And I think we saw my FTP coming along pretty quickly. And that was really encouraging. We also got some runs in and everything was kind of was, was feeling good. I couldn't get in the pool though, because of basically because of COVID, it was impossible to get in the pool at the YMPA. And that sort of that spring work, I think, laid the foundation for for summer. So as I mentioned, I'm from Norway. My family is, you know, my parents, my siblings, my kids' cousins all are over there. We hadn't seen them for two years. So we decided that we were going to make a pretty long trip this year. My sister was getting married and just sort of catch up on, on everything that we, we could. In order to get into Norway with, with four kids, we would have had to quarantine in the airport hotel for 10 days had we gone straight there, which didn't sound so amazing. So I basically found a loophole, which was while Norway deemed anything outside of the EU a red zone for COVID, within the EU, they sort of went country by country and Italy was green. And Italy was also wide open to vaccinated Americans. So we ended up going to Italy for 10 and a half days, basically, in order to enter Norway. So that was, I'd rather be in Italy than in, in an airport hotel. We went to part of Italy we've never been to on the Amalfi Coast. And it's just incredibly beautiful, like just super, super uh, nice. And I booked 
a bike at a time that I rent, rented a road bike. I brought my seats and my aero bars and my pedals and my shoes, set it up on the first day. And I, I didn't end up getting an incredible amount of rides in because we were still doing, you know, touristy stuff every day. But the rides I got in were, I think they were good for my fitness just to like not have uh, a week off, 10 days off. But I, they were also just so amazing as a human to like I biked up um, Mount Saito and it was just, you know, you almost start crying because it's just so beautiful and incredible. You just feel like you're in such an amazing place. So going back to wanting to enjoy this experience, those rides ended up being the, some of the most enjoyable parts. And then similarly, Rome, you know, didn't have any tourists at all because of COVID. So Rome felt like a quaint village and did some runs in Rome that were just incredible. Just, just really, really great. And then while in Norway, I had bought a couple of years ago, just an old aluminum bike that I keep there. And again, rigged it with all my stuff that I brought with me. And that ended up being, you know, the bike that I did most of my training during those six weeks and don't have a trainer over there. So while you would prescribe things that were pretty prescriptive, I would sort of translate that into a route nearby so if it was an intense, you know, an hour intensity, I'd, I'd go somewhere hilly and just, you know, make sure that I hit, hit that power. But I think in summary, especially on the bike, there wasn't a single ride that didn't feel like it was sort of an all out. Like I, I wanted to come home really, really having worked really hard. And I can't point to a single bike ride through this journey where I've sort of just gone out with friends and chatted the whole way for five hours. And like, I haven't had a single one of those rides. So yeah, that got, got us to Atlantic City right after we got back. I think I shared with you at some point, Conrad, that like, it feels like things are shaping up such that Atlantic City is, is going to be okay and pretty good. You know, if I wanted to do an Ironman next year or at some point, like, how do we think about that? And I think you said, well, you could do it right now. Like, if you just want to finish in 17 hours, you could do it right now. And I think that, that comment made me think, okay, well, what's up? <laughs> you know, what is there left, left in the calendar? And so I decided that I would only sign up for an Ironman this year in the next 48 hours after Atlantic City, basically, um, <laughs> because I wanted to know how hard it would suck. And then I figured that would be the period where it would suck the most, where before, you know, you start having all these romantic ideas of how great it was. And so I signed up a day after Atlantic City, basically. That's interesting. I feel like most people, they finish a race and they start to consider not doing it, you know, that quickly after they finish the race. So you had the other mindset where you wanted to complete it to know that you could take on the, the full distance with the amount of training you were doing. That's right. Yeah. And that was a shift. If you'd asked me even just a month before that, I definitely didn't think I would do an Ironman this year. But the thinking, the logic, I guess, was that this year has been pretty unique in just being able to, you know, do that training overseas and have the flexibility in my life. And, and with COVID, like anything can change anytime, kind of what we've all learned the hard way. I mean, in Norway right now, they're going into basically lockdown and, and you can't plan so much ahead as, as you used to. I was worried about going into the winter and losing whatever fitness I had built up and then starting over basically to train for an Ironman. It felt more like accomplishable to, um, to add two more months essentially after Atlantic City. And Conrad was up for it and, and here we are, worked out. We don't want to belittle how difficult an Ironman is, but we also don't need to necessarily put it on a pedestal and, and view it as this insurmountable obstacle that requires 20-hour weeks. And, and for you, your power, you know, your, we think about your, those key training metrics. They were pretty darn high. And, and athletes train for potentially months or, or years just to, to achieve that level of cardiorespiratory fitness. So we think about cardiorespiratory fitness, things like aerobic capacity, thresholds. One does need to consider that. 
yours were were pretty darn high. Really, an Ironman is an exercise of going really long at a very easy pace. And if somebody achieves a level of fitness, they should be able to exercise for a very long duration at a relatively small percentage of that fitness. If a 0.7, an intensity factor of 0.7 is a pretty common target for people when they go and, and do an Ironman, that's a target. And part of Ironman training is building up volume so that you know you can maintain somewhat of a higher maybe percentage of say your threshold for a longer period of time. At the end of the day, most people can exercise for a very long time at an intensity factor of 0.65 because then they're not limited by their metabolism. You know, A big component of people not doing well at Ironman is, is bonking. We knew that. We knew your fitness was, was solid. So that it was just a matter of you know, honing tactics and things like that. And we definitely dialed in nutrition and pacing and, and made sure that we had a good plan on race day. And in that way, it was almost more comparable to climbing a mountain uh, like Mount Rainier or something where you're not really, your heart rate isn't getting super high. You're keeping it low. But it just so happens that you know a small percentage of your fitness is enough to go pretty fast. So the build to Atlantic City proceeded well. And talk about that race briefly and, and how it went and if it differed than how you expected. So the good parts, first of all, I loved it. And, and it was so great going into Arizona to kind of have done an event fairly recently, just even knowing all the logistics and all of that stuff. So like the part that was the hardest was just, you know, not sleeping and resting, worrying that I had everything in the right bags and like all of the, just the pure logistics of, of doing any of these events. The race itself reminded me more of, you know, those other endurance type of events like a marathon or a half marathon where you sort of find a level that you can go pretty hard for the whole event. And then like, you'll crash at some point and hopefully it's right after the finish line. Or in my instance, it was like three miles before the finish line. And I ended up kind of walking a little bit at the end, but that can be luck or, or just, a, you know, slightly dialing it a little bit different next time. So that event reminded me much more of that. Whereas I would say the Ironman was just a long day of lots of different chapters where it was you know, the mental side and the, the nutrition side and getting stung by a bee or you know, like all these different, like it was just a long, long day of, of a, of a roller coaster and all those long endurance rides and runs sort of prepare you for that. And your big day prepares you for that. So Atlantic city was, was really hot too, which is another thing that's just hard to manage for whether like, if you're trying to not bonk or you're pushing you more towards that edge, if you will. The short summary was the swim, I came in a little bit faster than I had expected, probably just filled with adrenaline. And halfway into the swim, I looked around me and people were walking and I, I feel just this like sludge at the bottom. So you're in this like Atlantic City Bay and at some point searching for bodies or guns or something. So that, that part was a bit tricky. It was just really shallow. On the bike, I was surprised. Conrad had told me that you, you thought that I would have would have a good bike because it's really, really flat. And a lot of my training had been with hills. And so... I think you knew better than me, like how well it would go. And so for me, I ended up averaging 21.7 miles an hour, which for me was really fast. And I think I was like 12th in my age group on the bike. And I just felt like I was flying, like almost like something was wrong. Like I had to tailwind that others didn't or something. And, and I have to admit that like, especially coming from like not being athletic, it felt really good to be just passing a lot of people and, you know, people with incredible bike setups and just, uh, just plugging away and seeing that others are struggling when I wasn't and stuff. So like all the bike work that we did in the spring and in the summer definitely paid off at, at, at Atlantic City. 
throughout training a little bit because of these injuries that I had running sort of suffered. And I probably had a little bit of an overconfidence because I've been doing a lot more running that like, Oh, I can always run, but that's true. Maybe on your endurance, but it isn't true on your joints and your tendons and all the other things that need to sort of be, be there. The running, it got really hot and I, I walked the last three miles, but overall just loved the, I came in at five forty five or something like that, I think. And I, yeah. And, and it was, it was a great, great experience. I hope to do the same again next year. That's awesome. Was your volume similar going into Atlantic City as it was for Arizona? Yeah. I mean, we, we had more of those longer endurance uh, rides, but I think outside of that, Conrad, keep me honest here, but I think, you know, we, we really, it should be clear, like Conrad, you are doing a good job here, just as you did to me, absolutely not recommending doing very little training going into any of these events, right? So it, it, it should be clear that, that it was never prescribed six hours a week. It was just that it was prescribed nine to 12, probably, or maybe we brought it all the way down to like seven to 10 uh, after I was complaining about, you know, I don't have enough time, but I was missing workouts. It was just that I was essentially not doing much strength at all. I did very little swimming because something has to give and it was inconvenient. And then, you know, some of those less key workouts uh, had to go sometimes. So, and, and so I would sort of move yeah. it around. And I did uh, somewhat of a deep dive a couple of weeks ago into your training, sort of leading into each race. And in the six months before Arizona, you averaged actually a little bit under six hours a week, and you averaged less than a swim per week. And that was okay yeah. because you're incredibly comfortable in the water and you have no issues just hopping in, swimming 2K, coming out and feeling perfectly fine. Your heart rate stays low. So you have an efficient stroke. And when you're looking to do a long course race on, in fewer hours, trimming the swim volume is, is where to do it. Cycling, you averaged a little bit under four hours, closer to three and a half hours of cycling. And that was typically in two to three rides each week. But I will say that I'm not sure, I don't know if you did any rides where your intensity factor was below a 0.8 a lot of the longer rides you did, you would ride three plus hours at an intensity factor higher than 0.8. So you definitely got after it on your rides and indoors. You got very good at putting out steady power. That's essential for doing a, a triathlon well. And then running, yeah, you average because of the injury, two hours per week or less. That's indicative of going into Atlantic City. Going into Arizona, we did increase the cycling volume and you average closer to four and a half hours per week cycling and a comparable running volume just because of, of the injury. We knew that you were going to be okay at Arizona so long as you kept the run pace easy. Your result at Atlantic City was was very good, very solid. I mean, well in the, in the top half of the field, I think probably closer to the top third as in Arizona. I, I think you were right around top third in that race. But I think the key is that you had great cycling legs that set you up for a good run. You weren't exhausted coming off of the bike, even though your running fitness wasn't necessarily optimized. I think you could essentially ran pretty close to your what you could run in an open, maybe running race at Atlantic City. Mid 230s there, that was an excellent result. And you mentioned speed and of course, like Atlantic City, it's all about power to CDA or power to drag. And we definitely dialed in your position. So we paid attention to all the little things. And it's becoming even more clear when you have athletes uh, like Gustav Eden. Obviously, he won 70.3 Worlds a couple of years ago on a road bike. 
you had Taylor Nib at the St. George 70.3 World Championships this year who crushed almost everybody on the bike on a road bike. If you dial in your position on a road bike, you can still go pretty darn fast. And, and you're a good example of that. You crossed the line at Atlantic City. You were tired, obviously, but you enjoyed the experience, right? Yeah, absolutely. It was awesome. And I think on the running side, so my best half marathon was 150. Again, for like a non-athletic person, that I, I was happy when I did that. And the run at Atlantic City was like 220 or something. And it reflected especially that walking at the end and just taking it more, trying to take it more easy and manage it. But looking back at the whole season and the whole experience, you know, going into it, I thought running would be my strength, not my, not the bike. But once you get an injury in the, in the middle of training, especially toward getting closer to the race, it's just so hard to manage. Like what's not counted in those hours are, you know, I was a PT once a week and, uh, you know, I try to get some massages right. and just like really work on this injury and try to find a way to balance, you know, running frequently, running far, getting more time on the bike and, oh, it's hurting. I got to pull, pull back for a week. Looking back, that was obviously what gave, um, and that's not ideal. And, and had I had a different base or maybe prioritize more running early or just more strength training or, you know, I may, I may have had a different result on the running and in both races, frankly. So that's something that I want to work on going forward. A working triathlete, we always preach the importance of easy running. And I, I don't know if I've ever, ever encountered an athlete who I thought was, was running too slowly during easy runs. And you were especially... Uh, one who who liked sort of higher intensity running. You liked the the interval based stuff. I think that part of that was, I think you run more efficiently when you're running a little bit faster. But the way that your foot comes down when you run slowly actually can exacerbate the specific injury that that you experienced. And you went to a physical therapist who who confirmed this. <laughs> I never really had any injuries until, you know, I learned a lot about zone two. My max heart rate might be 200 and my average in that half marathon that I described was 180. So I'm like an all out runner, have all have been. And then I realized if I'm going to do anything longer than that, I got to change this completely and get into zone two running. And the minute I got into zone two running, I started getting injuries, which is just completely counterintuitive. But I do think that there's something about sort of the way my foot lands. And I've, you know, then through this year explored, I've, I went from Sakhani Kinvara to Hokas back to Sakhani Kinvara's. I have, you know, insults from a podiatrist. I have super feet. I, I mean, I've really tried lots of different things uh, with enough time to make sure it's a decent experiment. And it comes back to, I think if I, if I'm sort of in zone two zoned out running, like I just have a lazier landing or something that just sort of means that th th there's something there that uh, after five, six, seven miles just starts rubbing something the wrong way and, and it just gets inflamed. Whereas if I, if I go harder, it's just a more sort of precise landing or, or more intentional landing or, or something on my foot. And I just haven't had that issue. So yeah, that, that whole thing was annoying. So we came up with sort of run walk strategies and trying to start walking when it would start hurting on a scale of three to 10, not, you know, like all this different stuff. And in a perfect world, I'll just find a way to sort of get rid of it altogether, but it, it definitely made the, the strategy for the race and for the training um, a lot more complicated. So definitely a reason not to, not to try to do an Ironman on as few hours as possible, because this is a direct result of that. It's good to develop a base and certainly most athletes running slower does equal less trauma on their joints and, and everything. So 
we don't want a bunch of athletes to go out and, and start thinking that if they just run faster, maybe their, <laughs> their injuries will go away. But it was definitely an additional challenge, you know, trying to get in run volume and just staying in touch with that. But the good thing is we were able to structure training and, and, and make it so that you, the nature of your injury allowed you to run basically up until the point it hurt. And there was no danger in making it worse if you did that. That allowed you to, I think, maintain a lot of that run fitness. Going into Arizona, that the plan was to swim and bike appropriately and then treat the run conservatively and to immediately start with a, a run-walk program. And frankly, I think that a lot of athletes should probably do that anyway, but that really enabled you to have a great race at, at Arizona. It really did. I pointing out two quick things. First of all, and I've never worked with a coach before working with you. So as a quick advertising break for you on your own show, when you do something that's more, I would call this just a lot more finicky, like training for an Ironman. It's just a lot more finicky than signing up for shorter stuff. Having somebody a to keep you accountable, but also to give you, uh, you know, help you with all the math and all of that, and learning it, like climbing that learning curve, and then lastly, adjust and give you feedback. Who, you know, the injury I had, I think Conrad, you even said you had it at some point, and just having somebody to bounce different ideas off of is extremely important. The second point I want to say is just that you know you can read every book and you can download every every um, sort of training plan out there, but it's still your body, and I think the most enjoyable part of of doing this um it's just all the time that i spent getting to know my myself and that's true for mental stuff that's true for physical things down to injury or your heart rate like i can go for a run or a bike and i i can guess my heart rate probably within two bpms right and like you can never do that before like if you don't do this sort of stuff you don't do that and and as a quick sort of i guess last side note when i signed up for Atlantic City, I signed up with two other friends. One of them ended up doing it with me. I had this idea that I was going to do this with friends, right? Like all the training is going to be great. They're both in Brooklyn and I signed up for Brooklyn Tri Club, which is amazing by the way, but it's been amazing for me mostly because of the emails and all the online stuff because um, being time strapped, you're going to try to coordinate with someone else on top of it. It becomes impossible. It's already almost impossible, but if you, if you see that all the group workouts happen at 6 or 7 a.m. or p.m. when you know, that's when I get my kids ready for school or putting them down for bed. I had to very quickly abandon that idea of doing this with friends and just really, really embrace getting to take this time as alone time, as me time, as inward reflection. And during each workout, I, I rarely let my, like, it's not like I, it's a, you know, wander out and think about everything else, or I can't even listen to podcasts. Like I got to listen to like high beat music and it's just inward focus and thinking and numbers and how is this going kind of all the time. And that's, I think that's why I was able to do those more intense workouts all the time because that was my focus and it was a hard focus. It wasn't just sort of getting the hours in. So that's a bit of, it's a bit wordy for saying when it comes to injuries, like trusting yourself and trusting that I know how my foot lands and I can talk mm -hmm. to Conrad and my PT and everybody else. But ultimately I know when it starts hurting and not hurting and also just trusting, listening to your body and getting to know your body has been just a really enjoyable part of this journey. And that's a good segue, I think, into this idea of listening to your body even during an Ironman, because we can create all of these plans and these protocols during an Ironman. Um, you can plan out your nutrition to a T. 
you can expect to feel this way at this certain power output or this you'd expect your heart rate to be x when your heart rate is y however sometimes things don't align and at the end of the day you have to listen to your body gauge perceived exertion sometimes you have to improvise your nutrition strategy if you launch a bottle or all of a sudden if your stomach shuts down you have to adapt and ultimately i think we went into arizona with and we wanted to really stress that, especially with lower volume, you have to have the ability to really listen and also understand that if you feel terrible at any given point in the race, that doesn't mean that for the rest of the race, you're going to feel that terrible. There are ups and downs and you could bounce back. Uh, you could take in some caffeine and all of a sudden you feel great. Taking in a couple hundred calories of sugar, all of a sudden you feel great, fluid, sodium. So all of this is, is important. You know, I know going into Arizona and <laughs> there are a couple of things that happened before the race that were somewhat challenging that you had to overcome. And then even during the race, the, the joy of having, there's a lot of joy of having four trails in. One of them is not the fact that your chance of like picking up bugs is just extremely high, statistically speaking, <laughs> because there's four more sponges out there trying to pick them up. And then once somebody gets it, it sort of just has, it just travels through the whole family. So I was traveling out for the race on Thursday, the Sunday race, and starting Monday, every member of my family got this super violent stomach bug. Um, so my my wife was knocked out. The kids were just throwing up through the entire night, and I'm like, okay, dear God, let me like make sure I don't have this, and if I have it, like let's let make it happen now so that I can get on the plane and go out there. Right. Good news. When I caught it, it was very quick. <laughs> uh, I caught it on on uh, Wednesday evening, the day before flying out. And I just like, sorry for the, the graphic thing here, but like I threw up twice in a row, had a nap. And then two of my other kids had it at that time. And my wife was just white from not sleeping two or three nights. So I basically had a nap in, in the evening after throwing up started feeling better. I was drinking tailwind <laughs> to like make sure I, I was hydrating myself and, and, and getting ready for the race. But then I was up all night, you know, just dealing with the kids. And so I was very worried that I wouldn't be able, like I was looking at into other flights that I could still make and still pick up my stuff. And, but anyways, I, I made it just being fairly tired. First, I was worried about getting it and it happening there. Secondly, I was, when, when it happened, I was worried about not making the plane but then I was just sort of tired going into the race and I was worried about what that would do and the dehydration and everything. Uh, then when I got to the hotel, I was holding the elevator for a fellow triathlete. And as I was holding the elevator, she was bringing her bike in. I just dropped my phone, which has like a phone case with my credit cards and driver's license and everything on it, just down the crack from the oh, seventh no. floor, <laughs> down the elevator shaft. Oh, no. <laughs> and it just like, it took like four seconds. It felt like, and it just like, you could just hear that it was just stuff everywhere at the bottom of the elevator shaft and, and she felt horrible and I you know it didn't actually even phase me at that point because I was just like so worried about the race I guess on the day of the race literally 15 minutes into my swim somebody like I I have I had a Garmin you know Phoenix watch and I had bought like a cooler strap for it and maybe that strap wasn't as good and so like somebody just kicked my arm and I just felt the watch was gone I had to dig pretty deep like I'm a fairly optimistic guy, but in that moment to know that I had the entire Ironman without my watch knowing, especially being worried about the run and my heart rate and everything. 
But then I realized maybe another half an hour into the swim that like I could bring my bike computer with me on the run and knowing that I would have at least heart rate and I can do the math to get from minute miles to miles per hour and at least have some gauge on how I was doing and how far I was going. And I don't know if roller coaster is the right way, but like it's like a day of many, many chapters and some chapters are, are really good and some chapters are not so good and finding ways to stay positive. So yeah, that was an interesting start to the race. Wow. That's incredible. So lose your wallet. Did you, I assume you were able to get your wallet back? Yeah, they uh, called out the elevator company. It took me like took a day and a half, and so and I was even you know I was coordinating with my family. It was flying out, and I didn't have a phone, and like <laughs> it was it was interesting. But yeah, I got it. I, well, I got my wallet back. The phone was in a thousand pieces. But good news, if you have Apple Care Plus, it's only like fifty bucks, and they give you a new phone. So I have a new phone now. What a creative way to to overcome the adversity of losing your watch and just remembering that you could still have the heart rate data on your bike computer. Gave you something to think about during that that swim. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the, and the bike ride. Swim. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's tough to focus completely on swimming when you're swimming 2.4 miles in a lake. Something to focus on that maybe hopefully made that pass. I'm going to do it every time now. Every time I'm going to <laughs> make sure I drop my watch. <laughs> exactly. We could safely say that it went very well. So I know you finished definitely in the top half. And like I said, I believe it was top third. I'm not exactly sure how many finishers there were, but if you compare it to starters, it's up there. So it was, a, it was a solid performance. And take us through the, the race leg by leg. So the, the swim, I think it was your longest swim of your life up until that point. And then the bike, I know it was a windy day. And then the run, that, that walk jog approach that worked out well. The, the headline is it was it, it went better than I expected. I absolutely enjoyed it. I I probably could have even gone a little faster, but the trade off of five or ten or fifteen minutes versus right. just solidly enjoying and and knowing that I could do it kind of throughout. There was no moment in the race where I you know genuinely thought I can't do this, and that's worth a lot on a day like that. The swim there wasn't much more to it than I I lost my watch, and other than that, I, I was hoping to come in at one thirty, and I came in at one thirty. I just to swim. I have like one swim rhythm and one swim speed and there's probably a lot of work to be done there. But considering the fact that I've probably been in the water 10, 12, 15 times in this entire training, like that's all I can ask for to come out and not be spent. And I had done one, actually Conrad, I had done one 4,000 meter in a pool just to know that I could do it. And, and other than that, yeah, it was, it was sort of just slow and steady and calm counting the time. The whole day, if I, you know, it was just did a lot of counting. The whole day was just full of counting, <laughs> like that was like, especially on the run, which I'll talk about in a second. The bike was where I probably went in with the most confidence. We were targeting like a uh, 190 power, which would be about 19 miles an hour, I guess, on a flatter course. So there was a little bit of an uphill going out. So there's three loops, three out and back. There's a slight uphill going out that gets progressively steeper as you get to the turnaround point. So I averaged the first out and back 19 miles an hour, which meant I was doing 16 outs and then it came back up to 19. So that sort of tells you the, the pace. I noticed that there was a lot of wind and um, I also noticed that something was wrong with my power and I turned, I've never calibrated my power meter. So that was another sort of game time thing to say after the first lap, if I do this for two more laps, I'm going to be completely and I looked at other athletes too, and everybody was really struggling with the win. And it felt like it was even picking up a little bit. So I, I just 
switched over and kind of went more on perceived effort. Even after the first lap, one thing that freaked me out a little bit was that I was starting to feel IT band pain in my right leg, which I've never had on the bike. I've certainly had running and I knew there was a marathon after this. And going into this, it's worth mentioning that I, you know, I hadn't run more than 10 or 12 miles in this entire training. Like I definitely haven't done anything close the marathon since 2005, right? So there was reason to be worried feeling the IT band on the first lap of the bike. So each of those laps, I ended up averaging 19, 18, and 17 miles an hour for a total of, of 18, just uh, choosing to dial it back uh, on each of those laps. Fueling really well. I'm lucky in that I could take in a lot of uh, food and water. So I probably had like eight or 10 honey stingers and so it's six bottles of Tailwind plus some Gatorade. And it was hotter than advertised. Uh, it was, you know, on the Ironman website, it says average of 63, but I think it was 87, but it's kind of a dry heat. So it wasn't, you know, as bad. On my second lap, there was a bug. And I don't know much about like desert bugs, but I was like a bug all of a sudden inside of my visor. And I was freaking out about like, what this is? And I felt it sting my nose. So <laughs> there was a bee that, that sort of made its way into my visor that I was able to get out of there. Yeah, but like overall, it was it was it's beautiful out there. It's a great course. I like the three out and back because you can kind of mentally know where you're where you're at and what's left. And and it ended up being a good bike. I don't know that I would have done anything differently. I definitely had a lot of fuel left in the tank when I came back from it because I pulled back. Like that that last lap just felt easy uh, on purpose because I had no idea what to expect on the run. Did you notice the IT band? Did that go away? The the pain that you felt after the first lap? It felt uh, less when I went less intense or like less hard. I would estimate that I was like my power meter was probably off by twenty or maybe even thirty. So when I thought that I was doing, you know, on that first lap, when I thought that I was doing, I think my power meter said like one eighty. It was probably more like two hundred or two ten. It felt more like a seventy point three type of effort because of the wind. And a lot of athletes that I talked to on the run and after, you know, just didn't pick up on that and they just completely overcooked it on the bike and and just were just shot. So I'm glad that I came to that realization. Whether or not it was even just telling myself that like this might be off and just listen to your body instead of just looking at that number um, was really helpful, whether mm-hmm. or not that it was actually the case. So the IT band, so on the bike, that ended up being less of a problem, just something to like be really aware of. Coming out of transition, I really had no... Conrad, we had talked about like a run-walk, but I hadn't because my issues prevented me from doing these longer runs leading up to the race. I didn't have, I hadn't tested out and experimented with different run walk strategies. I would just sort of go off a run and after five, six miles, it would hurt so bad. Like I had to just kind of stop. And so going into the run, even the moment when I started the run, I just didn't know what to do and what to expect. I figured I would start running and see what it felt, but I sort of serendipitously met a guy who, uh, a pastor from Colorado, nicest guy ever, who said, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm one lap. There was also three laps of running around the lake. So he had done one lap already, had totally overcooked it on the bike and said he was doing two and a half minutes of running and 30 seconds of walking, which was a little different from what Connor and I had talked about. We had talked more about doing like the five minutes on and one off, uh, maybe even seven or eight. So I figured I'll start with this just to see how it feels and sort of get into it. And I ran with him the first six or seven miles. He then started walking, maybe just to get away from me because I was really chatty. I hadn't talked to it. I talk a lot. And so <laughs> I hadn't talked to anybody all day. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, I figured this is kind of working. Let me, let me keep doing it. And I kind of made a rule for myself that I would only, I would allow myself to walk if any of these things happened. The first would be that two and a half minutes of running had passed or there was an aid station, or there was a hill, or my heart rate hit 160, 
or any of these two injuries were hurting. The last one didn't really happen much, luckily. Like I really didn't have any problems with injuries, but it just feels... I went for a three-mile run a week ago now, and I, it, it hurt right away. So like the fact that I got through the whole race, it's probably a big portion of luck, but um, I was, that didn't become a problem. And, you know, I would, I would change it up a little bit. If I saw an aid station, I would keep running to aid station type of a thing. When I came to mile 21, there was kind of a long, slow uphill. I was really worried about these injuries flaring up. I started walking and then walked to mile 25. But it's also worth mentioning that when I was walking, certainly that longest stretch, but even on these 30 second walks, I would like hardcore power walk and I would, you know, and I would take in nutrition. Like it was still a very purposeful walk. It wasn't a break per se. It would, it would allow me to go from 160 to 140, uh, you know, 130 heart rate, but it would still be, in fact, I passed people power walking who were still running uh, during those four or five miles. And they were joking about it. I was joking about it. Like it's, it's amazing how fast you can walk if you make it a point to walk really, really fast. I think when I was walking, I was probably walking 14 minute miles, not 18 minute miles. And that adds up in, in that whole marathon. So like it ended up just being a lot of the whole day was just spent on, on uh, counting and, you know, the next little interval, the next little interval. Yeah. The, and then I ran the last mile. With a walk run approach, it's good because your heart rate can go down. But I mean, one thing that we talked about is you really do kind of have to keep the the walk intervals as short as as possible because it is really easy to to tighten up. So I mean, thirty seconds to sixty seconds. I think that's that's the max um, because at that point the body just forgets how to run, and you know that feeling at the end of a race where you might feel great when you cross the line, you walk and get your medal and then take, you know, 10 more steps, two minutes has passed. And all of a sudden your body can't walk. Your quads are just giving out and, and things like that. But the, the two and a half minute, 30 second approach was, was perfect. I think we talked about five minutes on one minute off. Uh, so you basically cut that in half. And, and honestly, I think that's potentially more productive depending on how the run feels. I think maybe at the beginning of an Ironman, it's it's okay to run a little bit longer and then walk short. And as it goes on, maybe increase the frequency of the the walk breaks. But clearly, the, it, it worked out well. And you were able to run the, the marathon at, at a fairly fast pace. Uh, I mean, it's all relative but it was even and clearly with alarmingly little run volume you were able to to push through the the marathon at the end of an ironman and you know still finish top third of the race i think i averaged 12 minute miles and and i came in at like 512 or something which was actually faster than my new york marathon back in 2005 <laughs> so that felt good you know, I told everybody my goal was just to finish, you know, within the 17 hours, but I ended up at 1326, which was my secret goal was to be under 14 hours and sort of be in that top half. So I wouldn't have done anything differently. And it, it was genuinely with a smile for the vast majority of this entire race, including the very last parts and including the run and, and, and just truly enjoying the entire experience. So could I have shaved off 20 minutes and have hated half of it. Sure. Maybe. And, and, and maybe, you know, that would be the goal next time around, but I, you know, saving, saving fuel in the tank throughout because you never know what's going to happen. I think was, was a good strategy that I, um, I, yeah, I don't think I would have done anything differently on, on race day. So now that you've you know, knocked out the full distance on an incredible 
amount of volume. When I say incredible, I mean very low, low volume. Has it piqued your interest to see what you could do on higher volume? Obviously, right now it sounds like you're incredibly time strapped, so your your time is limited. But in the future, do you see yourself wanting to improve just your overall performance? Yeah, the the answer to that question tends to sort of change by the day a little bit. Um, so I thought that this was something that I just wanted to sort of check check the box. But I enjoy the race and I enjoy the training, so I can see myself doing another one at some point. And then, of course, there's something to beat, which is the goal, uh, or sort of what I did last time. I don't know. <laughs> the short short answer, like. If I have more time, yes, uh, I will have more time just because the kids will continue to get older and they just soon they'll be teenagers and not want to even hang out with you and <laughs> you have all the time in the world. My focus right now is going to be on strength and getting the running base and sort of back into to being able to run, you know, eight, 10 miles without these injuries bugging me and sort of quote unquote solving that. I know injuries can happen anytime with anybody, but sort of after getting some good rest uh, now and sort of focusing on, on that, I can see myself being sort of replacing those half marathons with Olympics. So I always have something on the calendar, maybe, you know, usually do a half Ironman and, and, and now and then consider doing an Ironman that, you know, those half marathons were getting faster and faster each time. And so I think that if I do that, these, the goal will always be to be faster. It's, sure. it's hard to be a competitive person and spend so many hours on doing this and, and for that not to be your goal. So whether or not it's the other athletes that you guys train, I don't know that I could ever get there. Or frankly, even if I could, if, if that would be worth the amount of training that I would have to do, because if that meant I'm not racing my Volvo, that's probably no, mm -hmm. right? Like it's not going to be my only number one hobby, but mm -hmm. I think it's possible to, to enjoy this sport and have balance in your life. And I was able to do this with great coach and, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, experience and, and, uh, from before and some luck, I guess if, if my wife is not listening, which I think there's a pretty good chance she, she might not, you know, it's hard to be from Norway and, uh, it's hard to be from Norway and have Conrad as your coach and not have the thought of a Northman like creep into your mind as like another bucket list thing. Ask me, I guess, 24 hours, 48 hours after my next half Ironman and <laughs> I'll, I'll make a game time decision about what to do uh, in terms of longer course stuff. I don't know. And if you need a support crew for Norsemen, we'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. First, I think I need a lot of support even, even thinking about it. It's, it's a whole different ball game but it looks pretty epic. It is. No, I mean, it's, it lives up to the hype. It's, it's an incredible race. And being from Norway, I mean, it's, it's the perfect race to do. Obviously, it's a different beast um, than a typical Ironman, but it's a blast. It's beautiful. It's stunning. And you're certainly strong enough to, to do it with a little bit of training. So we'll see. And I think it's maybe a little bit easier for you to, to get in because you're from Norway. I know that it's a lottery. Oh, okay. You have to apply for it. And I think it's just luck. It's chance. But a certain number of slots are allocated to, to Norwegians. So you have that that benefit. So if, if you put your, your name in the lottery, there's a pretty good chance, I think, that they'll, they'll draw your name. You know, it's funny. We're sitting here talking about how ultra efficient this was and how few hours it was. And I think if you ask my wife, she would laugh at that a little bit because it still took a lot of, you know, our time. Or maybe it's just the fact that I, you know, I can't 
then I got re- really obsessive about it and, and didn't stop talking about triathlons <laughs> for the whole period. <laughs> um, but I think she, she will enjoy the fact that I will have a little bit of a less obsessive goal, but you know, in life, just having goals, having something, a pie in the sky, something that's sort of a, a, a dream is important. And I was a little bit worried having checked this box to like not have it the next thing. So even if it's super, the Ironman was always something like that, that I, you know, maybe I'll do it by, by the time I'm 50. And then all of a sudden you, it works out one year where maybe you could make it happen. So yeah, it's, it's good to have something that's, that's up there as a, as a, call it a dream, maybe not a goal even at this point. It's always good to, to reach for the next thing. Congratulations on, on an exceptional race at, at Arizona and, and thanks for, for hopping on the podcast. I think good takeaways from this conversation and, and hopefully, you know, maybe you will inspire others to, to embark on, on a similar journey and, and to, to tackle, tackle an Ironman, to not be intimidated by it. You know, they can know that with a, a careful plan, a careful approach, it's, it's possible to do one. Thanks for jumping on. It's uh, pretty incredible that you have been able to do that in six hours a week. You know, a lot, I think a lot of people do get obsessed with the races and, and the volume of training, even just training volume. People get obsessed with that number. And you have displayed that you don't need to be obsessed about how much volume you can put in to complete the Ironman. Quality over quantity. Well, <laughs> that's right. And thanks for, thanks for having me. I, you know, I obviously couldn't have done it with, without the help of a coach and Conrad in this example. But if I can do it, anybody can do it. And so if it's on your, on your bucket list, there's a way to make it work for you. Absolutely. Sounds good. Well, thanks for, for tuning in, everybody. This was the Working Triathlete Podcast. And if you want to reach out to Derek or me, uh, you can reach out to me at conrad at workingtriathlete.com. And you can reach out to me at Derek at workingtriathlete.com.